Seven out of ten proctologists recommend listening to the Drew Marshall Show. And when you talk, I seem to hear the echoes of places you have been when you walk. Colors all around you. Well, I was introduced to this gentleman, hmm, let's see, a few years ago, uh, through a mutual friend who said, you just got to watch his TED Talk. You know how many times people say that to me? Just got to watch this person's TED Talk. And, so I've watched a lot of TED Talks because I like them. Uh, but this guy resonated with me. <laughs> I feel bad saying this guy because, you know, it's Sir Ken Robinson. But this guy resonated with me because I am a high school dropout. And if I had teachers that got what he is trying to get people to get, then I probably would have stayed in school a little bit longer. Uh, Sir Ken Robinson, we've described him as... Uh, human hand grenade to standardized testing in our current educational systems and from the Siemens Mission Folk Club singing sea shanties all the way to Hollywood and now he's a what is he a lord or, or a magistrate or a knight or honorable I don't know what he is. Sir uh, Ken Robinson is on the phone with us Sir Ken Robinson thank you so much for being with us today it's my pleasure, Drew, and I'm not a magistrate, I just need to tell you. But you're all those other things? Are you honorable? You're a knight? You're a lord? What? Are, what is... I don't get the British stuff, man. Well, I'm reasonably honorable, you know, my own way, but uh, I'm not a lord. That's a member of the House of Lords, uh, oh. like a political appointment. Uh, but, I'm, yeah, I'm a knight. I was knighted by the Queen uh, in 2004. So, yes, so I... Uh, and my, my wife, consequently, is a lady. Well, she is a lady. She's great, isn't it? She is a yes, lady. I always said I'd make a lady out of her, and, and there we go. <laughs> um, yeah. did, you, did you like that song we came in with? I loved it, actually, yeah. I, I did, yeah. When was the last time uh, you heard uh, Jackie and, uh, and Brady? Probably when I was in my early 20s, because I grew up in Liverpool, and you're quite right. I used to go along, to, it's called, it was called the Siemens Mission in, uh, in the dock area of Liverpool, and uh, Jackie and Brady had a, a weekly folk club there, so I used to spend... I don't know if it's Thursday evenings at the folk club uh, with a lot of other people who were at school at the time swearing that we were going to stop roving around the world and we were going to go whiskey and wild women. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yes. That, that bit came true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what was your favorite pint back then? Uh, Tetley's. Okay. Tetley's and uh, uh, there's something called Einkoop. There was a place in Liverpool called Yates' Wine Bar, uh, which was... It was, it was one of those places where you learned the Liverpool Protocol. You know, it's a very finely tuned sensibility in some of these pubs in Liverpool. And it's easy to break it simply by looking at somebody. You know, that can be an incendiary move. So, yeah. I, I went into a small pub in Scotland a few years ago. I go there uh, quite frequently. And uh, my mate who was taking me in there said, look, this is the kind of, like, it's, I mean, it's a really, really small place. This is the kind of place where we will likely be sitting in someone's stool and if they come in, we'll probably have to get out and or leave the stool. And so somebody came in, tapped me on the shoulder and said, right, you're in my stool. And so I got up and, and as I got up, like I'm 6'4", 240, and this Scottish person was not that tall. And they said, right, you sit back down. You just relax. And it was all, you know, it was a fun night. So, And you did, presumably. I did. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. 
when when they've got the water tap on the bar, you know, a couple of drops in uh, in uh, in the in the whiskey is good. So listen, if you took the world and turned it on its head and shook it, everything loose would end up in Los Angeles. That's yeah. where you ended up. What does that say about you? We were loose. <laughs> I can't. I can't. <laughs> Take credit for the quote. It was Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes, uh, who said it? But yeah, yeah I, we were living in Warwickshire. I'm from England. You know, we were living in Warwickshire, in the centre of England, for about 13 years. I was professor of education at the University of Warwick, and um, I decided, in any case, that I, I wanted to move on to something else. I wanted to work more independently. It was absolutely no criticism of the university. I, I'm still an emeritus professor there, but you know, I was. 50 and ready for something else and uh, we'd been out to California several times and this opportunity came up and I was very engaged in what was happening in uh, American education and we decided you know it was a it was a good move uh, have you been to California Drew I was just there a few weeks ago hanging out with someone named Bryn well exactly exactly it, it's full of, of, of scandalous characters like Bryn like Bryn yeah but, but we were Say so we were living in the centre of England at the time, in in the Midlands near Coventry, and it was the third of January, and it was raining. <laughs> bye uh, bye. Bye now. Phone, <laughs> <laughs> I had a phone call from people at the Getty Centre in Los Angeles asking if we'd, if we'd like to move to California. Yeah. We left immediately. Yeah. And um, I don't think I even asked what the job was. Probably. No. I think the phone the phone's still swinging on the hook. <laughs> no, but we came here and. You know, it was interesting because we're just, I'm sure you reach that point in your life sometimes where you're ready for something new. You're yes. ready for the next thing. And we felt we'd, we'd complete the whole cycle of work there in, in the UK and in Ireland. And we were ready for, for a new adventure. And, and this came our way and it, it fitted in all kinds of ways with um, the rhythms of our life. And it was very interesting to me because, you know, we had some people saying, aren't you taking a terrible chance going to live in Los Angeles? And I thought, not really. You know, I mean, if it doesn't work out, we'll come back. Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, it's not like in, you know, in the 19th century. I mean, those old sea shanties you were playing. When people went to California from England in the mid-19th century, there was a very good chance they would be coming back. You know, yeah. people emigrated and they went. You know, you said goodbye and that was the end that of was it. it. Now was... it's, it's what? It's 10 hours away and two movies. So it's nothing, nothing to get too excited about, really. Exactly. Born in Walton, not far from Everton's football ground. One of seven yeah. kids. Polio when you were four. I just said it sounded like part of your resume there. Um, <laughs> it sounds like a plan, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Margaret Bevan's school, you took the 11 plus. How did you pass it when it was rigged? <clears throat> well, I've probably had something on the inside track. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's money, Drew. Money changes hands yeah. in these situations. I get it. I get it. How do you think I got into radio? Jeez. <laughs> well, I was just wondering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the question perfectly. Yes, it is. Yeah, um, but well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what it was. Um, I, I did. I went into a special school at the age of five uh, because I uh, had got polio at the age of four and you know, I was wearing braces. And we were less good at, at euphemisms at the time. It was just it was called the Margaret Bevan School for Physically Handicapped. And I was there. I went to a related school at the age of, I think it was 10. And yes, you're right. I don't know how many people in, in Canada are aware of it, but I guess quite a lot. That We had an exam at the time in public education at the age of 11, which determined whether you went to a grammar school or a secondary modern school. Hmm. Uh, and it was essentially a form of IQ test. And the reason I've written about it is because a lot of people think these tests are, are like some sort of blood test, you know, that they... It's like dipping a litmus paper or something into your head and it tells you how smart you are. And, of course, it, it doesn't quite do that because these are 
tests that you can prepare for, you can be trained for, you can improve for if, if, if you do the right kind of preparation. So that's the first thing. A lot of people took these tests and failed them and concluded they just weren't very smart. And the truth is they just weren't very prepared. And, and the second reason is that, that they're not like a blood test is that the scores were manipulated every year. It wasn't covert. It was perfectly clear. There was a limited number of places at grammar schools, and they used to raise the bar up and down according to circumstances because they couldn't allow everybody to go to grammar school. There was just a small number. Wow. So it was rigged in that sense. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't rigged in any kind of malign sense, but I think a lot of people didn't know it, there were so many variables. They just thought it was a verdict on how intelligent they were. Uh, from what I understand, uh, Sir Ken, your father was a quadriplegic because he was in an accident at work, and yeah. he sort of ran the family from the bed. So, I mean, really, my my question in that scenario, other than just being in complete awe of of someone like that, although he could have been a jerk, I don't know. But is is he is he your hero? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, he's for all of us. He was. Um, let's say we ran from the bed. It may sa- make him sound like Don Corleone, but I mean, <laughs> what he was in a way. <laughs> <laughs> kind of Liverpool version of it, yeah. and um, no, he was a fantastic man. He was—he'd uh, been a soccer player in his day, and uh, he, run, he ran pubs, and um, he'd been, uh, you know, very athletic and just, you know, very street smart and wise and funny. Hmm. And we all looked up to him anyway. And and then at the age of forty-five, uh, you know, there were nine kids, uh, seven kids at that point, nine of us in the family. At the age of forty-five, he'd been out of work for a long time. It was Liverpool in the late 1950s, very high unemployment. And he, he got a job as a, a steel director. And he'd only been in the job a week or two, and he went out one morning and there was this accident. A huge wooden beam fell from the roof of this factory they were working in and, and hit him across the neck and broke his neck. So he was, yeah, he was paralyzed for the rest of his life. He was a quadriplegic. So you you can imagine it plunged us into all kinds of turmoil, quite apart from the fact that he wasn't expected to survive the night, but but he did, Hmm. and went on to live for 18 years, which is uh, a long time for somebody in that condition. And it it was really, truthfully, Drew, it was was sheer willpower and, you know, a popular word these days, grit. But Hmm. it it was. He was a very strong-minded man, and it didn't affect his mind. I mean, it's the thing, often it happens if people are... There's a, there a great program on the BBC in England about... Mrs. Brown's Boys? No. No, no, it's called... It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a document, <laughs> a term, sort of um, current affairs program about disability. But it's called... It's a great title. It's called Does He Take Sugar? Hmm. And, and the reason it's called that is if you, you know, if you ever find yourself in a wheelchair, you find people who are dealing with you speaking to the person pushing the wheelchair, not you. You know, so, you know, you go to a restaurant and they'll say to you, if you're pushing the wheelchair, you know, does he take sugar? And you say, well, I'm here. You can ask me that directly yeah. if you'd like. Yeah. And so it is that people assume that somehow you're incapacitated in, in, a, in a more thorough way. Anyway, he was just, he was very strong-willed, very smart and, and interesting. And it, it wasn't that we, you know, we allowed him to run the family. There was simply no alternative. He was just, just very strong smart and strong man and he normally made the right call and we just respected him deeply and loved him for it folks we're on the phone with sir ken robinson let's talk about this stuff you've been banging on about for years standardization (laughs) are you referring to my academic career (laughs) (laughs) i must remind you not to write my resume oh yes i've never been asked to do that Uh, curious isn't it Yeah. yeah yeah 
First of all, what is standardization? It seems to rhyme with bastardization quite nicely. What is it? <laughs> well, look, let me just rewind it a little bit. It isn't that I'm, I've got some big preoccupation with standardization. Uh, I mean, you know, I, mean I, I have a life, you know, it, it, it isn't just that. <laughs> it, it's, it's, that's a, a subset of a bigger argument, really, which is that I feel that, but not I feel, I think it's just a matter of fact that people are born with the whole range of interests and talents and dispositions and possibilities and the life we end up having is a great deal to do with what we make of ourselves and how we think about ourselves and a lot of that is to do with how we're educated and and there are features of our current education systems and i'm very careful i always say i i am an educator i work in education my whole life i work with teachers i have taught you know, i've worked in universities worked with schools i'm not criticizing teaching as a profession on the contrary this but there's something in the the culture of mass education which militates against the kind of diversity that people naturally manifest you know and it's why you know people like you will go through education and feel it didn't ever understand i'm, I'm i don't want to put words in your mouth but you no, said, you're right you you left school early because yeah. presumably it didn't resonate you people didn't get get you you didn't feel well you tell me i don't have to take no you're part. spot on yep. why did you Yep. Spot on. No, I mean, look, um, you know, I'm a grade nine dropout. I was asked to leave four different schools. But he, this is what I'm trying to understand with what you're, you're, you're speaking about, with what you've been teaching about, which with the books that you've written. If I spent a month, Sir Ken, reading your books and, and, and being mentored by you, uh, what, I might discover that I'm actually a genius? I mean, I, I, maybe I could end up being a, a vet working at the local abattoir? <laughs> You, I don't know, you, you might be a vet, but my guess is you're doing the thing that you like to do and that you've discovered. But but the thing is, we all, we all have a whole range of talents and abilities. You know, we're all unfinished business, really. I mean, one of the great examples for me, it, it, it's a small one, but it's an interesting one, is that when you think of how um, voraciously young kids learn, I mean, for example, when... Children the first 18 months, couple of years of life, uh, mostly learn to speak. That's an extraordinary thing to be able to do. And they, they do that because they're massively curious and they, they have a rapacious appetite for that kind of learning. And the interesting thing is if you've got kids, I don't know if you do, but if you've got kids, you know that you don't teach your children to speak. You couldn't. It's far too complicated. You wouldn't have the time and they wouldn't have the patience. You know, you don't reach the point where your child's 18 months old and you sit them down and say, look, you know, we need to talk. <laughs> or, or, or more specifically, you do. Mm. And, and this is how it's going to work. It, that, that doesn't happen. They learn it. When they get to school, often something to do in the structure of education starts to inhibit it. So you find kids at the age of eight and nine getting bored at school, but then they go out of school, they're, they're happy to learn again. Now, this isn't true of all schools, it's not true of all classrooms, of course not, but there are things to do with the structures of schools. Now, the reason I'm just mentioning this is that if you grow up in a monolingual household, you'll learn one language. If you grow up in a house where five languages are spoken, you'll probably just learn all of them because you've got the capacity for it. If you're exposed to music early on, you'll probably learn to play instruments and to sing reasonably well. If you're you know, exposed to pearl diving you know, in the South Pacific, you'll probably be quite good at it. <laughs> There aren't many pearl divers, truthfully, in Coventry, and I I was looking. It's about about opportunity and capacity. So we've all got immense capacities. It's like there's natural resources. Whether we cultivate them is a different matter. So part of my argument is that we need forms of education that recognize the great range and depth of talents, and 
What we tend to have are systems of education which focus on a particular type of talent and cultivate that, a particular sort of academic ability. And you see that in the way the curriculum gets very narrow. You know, we cut out music programs, arts programs, we cut out physical education, outdoor work, things of that sort. <clears throat> and in the last number of years, this is my the point about standardization, the whole uh, system has become uh, even more restricted, often against the will of teachers, by a political pressure to impose standardized tests on everybody. So it's actually making it worse, not better. That's my point. Well, look, um, you know, as I, I've been trying to process uh, the information that I've researched on you and that I have come to, to know about you and and Thank you for doing that, by the way. It's, it's a long time since anybody mentioned Jackie and Bride is me. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. But not... I'm not, impressed with whoever's written your brief. Yes, they... <laughs> well, you know, my people are... Uh, your quite, people, yeah. yeah your people. Uh, well, look, not everybody can do what they like to do, and we are living in an age where that's that seems to be the popular mantra. Just go out and do what you really love to do. Well, then who's going to run the factories? Who's going who's gonna, to you know pick the fields? I don't know, whatever. Um... And, and, you know, you make it sound as though if everyone just had the right teacher and the right ways of being taught that anyone can excel in school and, and then, you know, it's, we're part of this whole culture of participation awards for everybody. You know, there's no losers. Well, losing motivates, does it not? Well, I'm not arguing that, you see. I mean, I'm arguing for diversity. You know, if there are some people, I mean, I, I criticize the preoccupation in schools with academic work. I mean, academic work's very particular. You know, it's, people think it's the same thing as, as general intelligence. It's not really. It's a capacity for a certain type of, you know, what philosophers call propositional knowledge and deductive reasoning. It's why it's a sort of um, sort of intelligence that's best transacted in, in writing and mathematics. And, of course, they're desperately important. I've never argued against that. But that doesn't begin to take account of all the other abilities that go up to make a human culture, a human community, you know, the power to connect, to relate, to... Uh, you know, to build things, to design things, to uh, have completely fresh ideas and a whole range of modes, you know, to compose music, to sing it, to create works of art. I mean, all all that stuff uh, falls outside the strict definition of academic ability, and it also falls outside the mainstream priorities of most education systems, and that's part of the problem. But no, I'm not arguing that we're all uh, kind of unconsummated geniuses in every single field. I am arguing that we all have uh, potential that we often simply don't explore. I mean, I'll give you a good example. In the 50s, less than, far less than 20% of people went to university. You know, less than one in five. And now it's, it's getting on for one in two. Well, it's not because fluoride has suddenly kicked in with unexpected consequences, you know, and that people are much smarter than they used to be. It's that we've opened the gates because we need more people to go to college. And my dad could comfortably have done a PhD if he'd had an interest in it, but he, did, he left school at the age of 14. I mean, it just, it seems to me a truism. You know, we have all kinds of unfathomed talents. So um, one argument is, that from a personal point of view, I think it's, it's a matter of entitlement that people should be in more enabled than they are currently to discover what their abilities and talents and interests are. And if you dis do discover your true talents, then, you know, your life often does go in a completely different direction. I wrote a book about this. It's called The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. And we know the world depends upon people with all kinds of different interests and talents for it to function at all. Economic arguments for it. Uh, there are cultural arguments for this, which I set them out in a new book I just did called Creative Schools. But I'm not, yeah. I'm not 
you know, I live on the same planet as everybody else. I mean, I, you know, I'm not living in some kind of hippie at all. I mean, uh, granted, I do live in California. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You know, and now stop it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Drew, I thought this when I lived in Coventry. So I'm just saying that that the that there are, there are all kinds of options which I've tried to set out in various ways forward. But the other thing I just want to say is this isn't only about what you do for a living. And I think this is where we people trip up. You know, that it, I'm not saying that, you know, just go and find the thing that you love to do and make your living from it. Because firstly, some people don't want to make a living uh, from the things that they love most to do or feel most at home in doing. And some people simply can't. People's circumstances are very different. Hmm. You know, so I'm not living on, on some alternative planet. But it is to do with fulfillment and it's to do with uh, people finding a path that satisfies them. And by the way, just to get the scale of this, um, one of the major features, uh, one of the major challenges that we currently face on the planet is depression. Hmm. Now, according to the World Health Organization, the second largest cause of illness in human populations by 2020 will be depression. You know, the pharmaceutical companies are making you know, a, an unspeakable fortune from selling antipsychotic drugs and antidepressive drugs. Uh, you know, people have got this uh, misconception often that that. You know, earning more cash and, and, and having more things is the same thing as being happy. I mean, we want to be happy for all, every good reason. <laughs> but it's not, a, it's not a material state, it's a spiritual state. And you know, a lot of the issues we face are deeply emotional in character and spiritual in character. I don't mean spiritual with a, with a big S in the religious sense. I don't not mean it that way, but it's spiritual unrest right. and, and desolation often that, that is bringing people down because they don't have a purpose or a meaning in their life. And so there is a big argument attached to all this, and it's not the same as saying that everybody has to get a, a, you know, a silver cup. You know, as soon as you introduce diversity and different ways of uh, get, judging excellence, and of course, you know, some people will be better at things than others. Of course, I mean that's all part of the argument. I, I've, I've written books. You know, I'm not. I don't expect to get a Pulitzer Prize for them and, and think, well, this is a disgrace. Of course not. You know. Yeah. Uh, you have to apply relevant criteria to recognize people have got different sorts of talents and different levels of them. Uh, SirKenRobinson.com is a website you'd like to go to, I'm sure, at this point in our discussion. But still, listen. Uh, you brought up spiritual, you brought up religion, and, and I, I actually did not pre-formulate a question in this category because I'm not actually quite sure where to go on this. When I think about religion... You, you'll get better at this, Joseph. <laughs> Give <laughs> it a couple of years. When, when did they get your hand in? Okay, all right. Thanks. <laughs> Boy, you are encouraging, aren't you? Glass is half full. Um, so when I think about the cross-section of religion and arts and education, you know, the first thing that comes to mind are some of the Ivy League schools that started out, you know, as religious institutions, and uh, let alone the, the first printing press that printed the Bible, the Gutenberg, uh, and and then religion was really uh, uh, quite a supporter of the arts. But these days, I wonder, I wonder if religion is oh, man. How do I say this? Is religion a pain in the butt to arts and education? No, uh, no, I don't. So, I mean, I I, I think that it's important to distinguish them all. <clears throat> I mean, I personally have no. Uh, religious conviction. You know, I, I mean, I grew up within the Church of England, but that was because I was living in England, and there was a church down the street. <laughs> and I'm not being—I'm not being cynical or skeptical about no. the, the the importance of religion. Uh, my son James is a you know a deep religious scholar and, and spends a, you know most of his conversation discussing theological issues. And really, uh, I didn't know that. He's a wonderful guy. I have great debates and conversations about about all these issues. And could you put uh, him on the phone, please? 
He's not here right now. Oh. <laughs> we, we, we keep him out of the house on important occasions like this. Right. But, um, you know, but I also had the great privilege to spend time with, uh, uh, in Canada a few years ago with the Dalai Lama. And, uh, and of course, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's far too big an issue to, you know, to um, come out with slick aphorisms about the importance of, or otherwise of religion. I'm just saying I myself don't belong to any yeah. religious grouping or, um, or faith system. No, but okay. Maybe the maybe the tie-in here is private schools versus public schools, and a lot of the private schools, at least in this country, are religion-based, and people send their kids to those schools because they think they're going to get a better education. Do you have sort of an overview, you know, that whole thing? Well, you know, it's hard to, indeed, impossible to to filter religion out from more general cultural issues. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of friends here on the uh, on the west side of Los Angeles who are Jewish, and they. Know, they attend synagogue, but what goes with, with their, their, their beliefs is a powerful sense of family and community, um, of, of mutual support and help, and that's, that's deep, in, it, deep in their tradition. So, you know, being Jewish isn't just attending synagogue, it, it's, a, it's a way of life, and it's true of most cultures. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland, where, you know, Catholics and Protestants, of course, have much more in common than, than they don't have in common. Uh, they have a deep sense of community, which is derived from their religion. And uh, but, but it's also axiomatic to say it is that very small religious differences have led to enormous amounts of cultural strife. Uh, but I, I'm, I, I don't think it's there's any um, exclusive relationship in any of this with the arts or education. And by the way, when I talk about creativity, I'm not confining that either to the arts, the arts. or education. My yeah. background is in the arts, as it turns out, and. Uh, I was originally uh, trained as a drama and English teacher, and, and I had a, a, a bit of a background in theatre. Uh, but I also was on the board of Royal Ballet, and you know, I, I came over to the Getty Centre here, which is a visual arts institution. So I'm passionately committed to the arts. I was Professor of Arts Education. But creativity is a much bigger idea. Creativity is in science and te- technology. It's in every form of human uh, in intellectual activity. It, it, it is what characterizes human life, I think. I, un- unfortunately, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm terrified by the people that run your schedule. So I want to just be, I want to honor that time, and I want to just finish off with two real quickies, if you don't mind. It's a, it's a, a cheap way to finish an interview. But if, if one of your kids turns out to, to be a complete tool, wouldn't that cause you to go back to the proverbial chalkboard and, and everything? You know what I mean? Like It's like the the preacher who's been speaking out against homosexuality until one of his kids turns out to be gay. You know, oh, I've got to rethink this stuff through. Has that, has that ever happened in your, in your life, the way, you've, the way your kids have grown up? Or are they just, they're probably just both geniuses, right? <laughs> no, no, actually, they, they are both great, as it turns out. Ah. Um, okay. But, but, you know, but, but I do speak from that experience, too. I mean, Terry and I, my wife, have been together now for nearly 40 years, and that's like an old song, isn't it? And, and you know, we, we, I say we live in the real world. We've got two kids. They're very different. They've got very different talents, very different interests, and we've tried always to walk the talk with them and to encourage them in the way that we think they would benefit most. So, yeah, it, it's not a smooth ride. None of this is. No, no. You know, it's real life in the end, isn't it? But I don't think it, I, nothing has happened to me in my life personally or professionally has led me to think that what I'm talking about is fundamentally flawed. I mean, I keep trying to learn more about it, but I see evidence of it everywhere in the schools I visit, the people I work with, and yes, in my own family. It, hmm. I, I see it vindicated all the time. It's why I keep going on about it. If I thought I was, 
I was wrong or it didn't matter, I'd do something else. I'd be a traffic warden. You know. Okay, uh, one one word answer for this, maybe if you can, and then we'll, we'll say goodbye. Your big fancy TED Talk back in 06. <laughs> Your big fancy TED Talk. Um, is, is there anything that you now wish you hadn't have said or that you no longer believe? When? In t- from 2006? Yeah, from, the, from that TED Talk, yeah. A one-word answer, yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> but, but if people are interested, I, I've written a lot about this in this book, Creative Schools. And, of course, there's a lot more to say about it than you can say in 18 minutes. I yeah. sometimes get people come and say, well, you didn't say this, you didn't say that, you didn't tell us what to do yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah. Well, give, me, give me a break, it was 18 minutes. <laughs> but, but I have written a lot of stuff about it if you're really interested. Yes, and I will, uh, when you say goodbye, I will plug your books like crazy. Well, thank you, Drew. I'd love to talk to you again. It's been great. It was. It was an honor and a, and a privilege uh, to speak with I me. I understand that. I understand yeah, Stop that. it. Stop. <laughs> I said it first. Sir Ken Robinson on the Drew Marshall Show. Pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. Bye-bye. Stay with us.